WCW's World War III took place November 26, 1995 from the Norfolk Scope Arena in Norfolk, Virginia. It was attended by 12,000 people and it had a buy rate of 0.43 which amounts to about 90,000 buys. Alright, Matt, it's been a while since we've talked wrestling. It seems like we just kind of go through these phases. I know you and I are determined to get through the Monday Night Wars. We are in November of 95. Right on the cusp of 96, and as we know, the middle of 96 is when things get a little heated up in the Monday Night Wars, but had you ever seen World War III before you, uh, you watched this for this podcast? Aren't we living it right now? <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that joke aside, I, I always like this concept. Battle Royals, I'm a sucker for. I think Pat Patterson with the Royal Rumble, that was one of his best achievements as a creative mind. And this starts a pattern that we'll really talk about in 96 onward of one-upsmanship, particularly on the WCW side. Royal Rumble had been around for six, seven years at this point, and they had already done one where the whole gimmick was the world title was being awarded to the winner. So it's like... Picture Ted Turner and company sitting there going, all right, what can we do to, to top that? And somebody said, just make it bigger. And they're like, all right, don't need any more thought than that. We'll just add two more rings and twice the, the people. And it's it was an interesting thing. This was not really something WCW had done at the time. But the, this whole world title shit show ha- has not been really fun. If you're a fan of lineage and, like, value the title... It wasn't being handled in the best of ways. No, it wasn't. And if you listen to Eric Bischoff on his podcast, it's a very interesting podcast. It's called 83 Weeks. And because he is asked, he is asked, was this a way of one-upping WWF? And what Bischoff says, and you could take this with a grain of salt, but he says it wasn't. It was pretty much he wanted each pay-per-view to have its own identity. But when your identity is double one of the WWS biggest pay-per-views of the year, it does kind of look like a one-upsmanship going on, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's like that's like saying all of, all of our pay-per-views are, the, are different. I'm like, okay, the WWF had been doing that, but their, theirs were not necessarily match types as much as they were like the time of year and, and doing theming. And honestly, at this point, I think WCW, because they weren't doing an in-your-house model, which the WWF was more reliant on, their pay-per-views are much more varied, you know, like Bash at the Beach, Great American Bash, Starcade, Halloween Havoc, all these fun, more seasonal type of pay-per-views made the product more exciting. But I think what Bischoff said is just, it's him answering the question, but also dancing around it. And I'm not satisfied with, with either answer. But was he, because I don't know the full time on this, it's been a long time since I've read his book. Was he involved in the creative process at this time? He says he didn't really get too involved until 96, but he would be in on meetings and things because obviously he was the EVP, Executive Vice President. So he did approve it, and I believe he does say that this is a Kevin Sullivan concept, but I don't know. Like I said, if I if I know Bischoff and you know, I, I've gotten to know him a bit on that podcast of his, I was a member of, of their Patreon for quite a while. Um I was on their top guys list or whatever, and I, I would they, he would have things where he would ask fans questions, and I was a part of that panel for a lot of the times. And he he comes off as a very good, very cool dude, 
but he doesn't come off as too genuine when it comes to this kind of stuff. And if you ask him, like, he would just say, you know what, that was the creative process. I wasn't part of the creative process at that time. I wish I was a part of the one that covered this event because I would ask him that exact thing. But like I said, it just does kind of come off as a one-up, one-upsmanship thing going on here. Yeah, it does. And I, I will also say that part of the reason why we I, I wanted to take a bit of a break is because I think of at this point with what we've started with, ninety five is is not the not the best time for either company. And I've been telling myself just get to ninety six, and things will get a hell of a lot more interesting. But you know we got four more shows I think to close out the year, including this one. So still got a bit of a ways to go. But is there redeeming stuff on this show? That's and that and that is a big question. And I think what's interesting about going through these, Matt, is the fact that we're seeing a lot of these guys, and we'll talk about it in the first match, a lot of these guys finding their way, you know. And this is the time when Bischoff is signing people like Rey Mysterio, and he's signing Dean Malenko, he's signing Eddie Guerrero, he's signing Chris Benoit, all these guys who are going to define what that federation really became. And that's, you know, it's highlight, and Bischoff will be the first to tell you this. It's highlight is always the undercard. The main events are always kind of second fiddle. And this is when he is building the brand. And I think seeing it built from the ground up is interesting to see. But you're right. There is a lot of (laughs) crap to slog through in order to get to the point where things really heat up and the NWO was created. And you're right that, yes, he was was assembling a one of the most talented rosters for the next couple of years you'll ever find in a wrestling promotion. But he did it at the expense of two things. One, guys got only to a certain level, and we'll really talk about that in the years to come. And B, he was also doing it at the expense of Paul Heyman. Uh, he was notorious for taking... WCW was notorious for looking at ECW as a glorified indie promotion, which it kind of is and was, but really dipping into their talent pool because they could pay guys a hell of a lot more. You know, look at uh, Guerrero, Malenko, Mysterio, Jericho, the Invisible Man, as I I want to call as I call a certain person. <laughs> and I don't say that on I say that both ironically and unironically. And since he has a match on this show, we can finally talk about it properly. Correct. All right. Um, what do you say we kind of get into this event? Because yep. We gotta talk about this this most ra- this random video package. This video stuff. package is really something else, and they're really highlighting the fact that there is a thirty, you know, a sixty man battle royal. And yeah, you're right, very random. WCW they would get a little better later on, but WWF, if there's one thing they always had over WCW is that their, their promo packages were always way better. <laughs> yeah, their promo their promos and a lot of their a lot of their production value in general was just better. Mm-mm. I, I think that was that was also because Vince had been doing it considerably longer on a bigger scale. But I think over time they they would get on an even playing field. But I don't think about that stuff more until they really took advantage of the NWO concept and started doing a lot more. You know, we'll talk about the promotional materials for that uh, and how sort of transcendent that was here in America. But this is just you know they're they're running across every single person from, you know, your top guys like Sting, Luger, all the way down to guys like Buff Bagwell and Buff Bagwell and Jim Duggan, who you know have no chance of winning this thing. And the one thing that was different was this was not, you know, World War Three is not guys entering at a ninety second interval. They all start at the same time. Correct. Which which I don't like because it makes it really hard to follow the action. And, you know, we'll talk about this in Royal Rumbles. When it gets really crowded, 
most of it is just guys hitting each other and pretending to not be eliminated. When this kind of battle royal is done great, it works really well. But it's not usually when there's 20 guys in a ring at a time. Well, yeah, and that's the whole thing, right? And we'll talk about this when we get to the Royal Rumble, as you said. But in that match, you can follow it, and there's always cues that these guys have. You know, it's like you got to get out at this time. You got to get out at this time. You know, and and here they have those cues, but they have to, like you said, they have to guys like the Giant and they have to pretend that they can't get out, that they're not being eliminated, and they have to kind of roam around and aimlessly. And you're right. This whole concept is really, really odd, and we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. This event starts off, Matt, with one of the most bizarre promos I have ever seen in my life. We start off with Mean Gene. He's at the podium with Hogan and Savage and Sting. Gene saying that people are picking Hogan to win the Battle Royal. And then Hogan talks about, you know, at this time, we haven't covered Halloween Havoc in a while, but at that time, he was experimenting with wearing black. This is way before he became the head of NWO, right? He's wearing black. He is experimenting with the quote-unquote dark side. Well, here he's removing his black bandana shirt and throws them into a trash can and says that the dark side is no more, and he sets them on fire. He then says that he will never question his friends' allegiances again. And then he wants to be Sting and Savage's friend forever. Yeah, that worked out. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm sure Randy reciprocated that full front. And then <laughs> Hogan This is so bizarre. He calls out the wrestling observer and he says, Observe this, brother, and he throws it into the fire with the black clothes that he just threw in there. What the fuck is going on here? Yeah, I, I've never liked... Because this borders on shoot promo at, at this part with, you know, bring in a, a, the newsletter. Uh, because it, he's also talking about, like, Savage's injury, mm-hmm. which, you know, was was a factor as well. But, yeah, and, and the weird thing with this whole Darkseid Hogan is that he never turned heel. So it's, it's just weird. He's like, I, I'm... I'm, uh, I don't know what his exact line was, but he's like, I still believe in truth and justice. I'm like, you never, you never retired that. You just did a palette swap. And I also love, you see Okerlund looking around for a fire extinguisher <laughs> because there's a part where that barrel fire looks like it's going to overtake the set. Yes. And that would have been a whole other pay-per-view. And this promo also makes the end of the show ten times worse if you're, like, part of that smart crowd mm-hmm. and, couldn't, and couldn't stand Hogan. Yeah, and, you know, Meltzer has always been anti-Hogan. He says, like, if you read his newsletter, he'll always take smarmy remark, smarmy uh, shots at him, and I, I get where, he's, where Hogan's coming from with this, but this is not the way to do this, man. You don't call this out, because all you're doing is you're calling attention to something that you hate and already hates you anyway. Ugh. So weird. God, I am so, like, this is the last time, I mean, in this era that we'll see this. I don't know if we see it in later years, but I, I am so glad that they don't call this out too much. Because I, I, I'll i admit, in the early days, I did get the newsletter. Um, it came with my PWI, my Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine that I got. And I grew out of that phase pretty quick. Um, I'm just not a fan of the guy. Although, you know, if you listen to the podcast that Tony Schiavone and Eric Bischoff and Arn Anderson and all of them do. They, they, you know, they all use their newsletter to kind of, you know, to go over their matches and things. And 
and it's just he just he just he's just too smarmy for me. Are you a fan of the Dave Meltzer uh, smarmy crowd, the newsletters, and all those things, the the rags? It depends on the the time the time of year and sort of what the topic is. I think at this point, just he was saying what everybody was saying about Hulk Hogan, but he acted like he was the first one to call it mm. out. I think that was part of that. I mean, look, everybody knows that Hogan is not and was never the most diverse when it came to his in-ring work, but that's not why he was the biggest star on the planet. And it was also a time where the whole thing of the smart mark crowd and, you know, the, the people who value in-ring skill over anything else, that was not on the forefront of people's minds. Because like, there's always that question, can wrestling itself draw? Um, you know, just the in-ring product in and of itself. And I don't know if that, that's ever going to be the case, but I, I in 95 of all years, to, to plot this in here, was really out of place. Yep. So let's move on. We're getting a recap of the DDP Johnny B. Bad feud, which I feel has been going on for about six months now. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, look, this is one of those things. WCW was notorious for either extended programs or having two guys wrestle so many matches against each other, you, they become interchangeable with one another. And, th- and this is not the first instance of that on this show, by no. the way. Kimberly's putting herself up as a prize in this match because she's she's reasoning that this that she knows how much the title means to Diamond Dallas Page. She says that he cares more about titles and possessions than her, and this is how this match has been led up to. So here we go. TV title match. We got Johnny B. Bad versus Diamond Dallas Page, and the winner of the match will get both the TV title and Kimberly's quote-unquote services. Both men, they kind of scuffle to the floor where Johnny B. Bad sends DDP into the post. He then hits Paige with a Samoan drop and locks him in some holds. Paige answers with some hair pulling, but Johnny B. Bad does the same. Now, Matt, would you have guessed? I wish I wish you were really around when me and my friends were watching these matches. You were two years old at this time, but we were we would watch this match, and there was no way we could ever predict where DDP was going to go from here. Would you have ever predicted from watching this match, that he would go on to be the biggest star in the world, pretty much, uh, at least in WCW. Well, I don't know if he was ever the biggest, but he would certainly... I think he's one of those guys who, who really, like, to, to use a dating line, outkicked his coverage. <laughs> because he was never the most athletic guy, and he, he's sort of like the, the Morgan Freeman of wrestlers, where he got into it much later in life than yeah. most people did. You know, and he was a manager. More primarily before he was ever a wrestler, but yeah, I think it. There were reasons why his star power sort of accelerated, but but part of it's because I think of the the everyman became much more prominent in wrestling, largely because of Austin, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about you know in a little bit. So I think riding that wave and and people popped for everything he did. You know, crowd WCW was typically good at. When guys were hot, they, they knew how to put them in viable programs. Uh, and I think there's another there's a person in particular that's really responsible for DDP getting as over as he as he would eventually become. Yep, we'll get to that. So Paige is tumbling out of the ring, and Johnny B. Bad hits a slingshot crossbody after a fake out. Uh, Johnny B. Bad's attempting a punch, but DDP uses Kimberly as a shield. I always love when bad guys used to do that, when they would take that woman on that ringside and put him in front. Like, it just makes him look like just a complete scumbag. Savage was huge with this, with Elizabeth back in the WWF days. 
Yeah, and this was before you had female wrestlers as valets who could actually work in the ring. I mean, the only one that was really, I mean, two, Luna Vachon and Sherry, were really the only two that were, would would not put up with yeah. this. Um, but it's just so funny that you got uh, the, the, the rights of Kimberly eventually become his wife, uh, considering that Mark Mara would be married to Sable. They were already married at this point, from uh, from what I understand. So it's yeah, <laughs> these two guys and the host of those podcasts. His name's Conrad Thompson. He puts it perfectly. It's obvious that both Mark Marrow and Diamond Dallas Page were great at selling because they landed those two chicks. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, when DDP uses Kimberly as a shield, this is allowing uh, Paige to k- take control with a reverse pancake. He looks outside for a 10, but Kimberly's refusing to do it. Johnny B. Bad responds with some punches and an atomic drop, which earns him a 10-plus from Kimberly. I always hated this whole 10, blank out of 10, that they would go to with her. They had to do something with her. This was just stupid. <laughs> yeah. They might as well have given her one of those boxing round cards and have her just <laughs> exactly. It up. He then uses a sit-out power bomb. DDP returns with a clothesline and he's doing some cheating, but it's not enough. DDP's following with some tilt-a-whirl moves, but Johnny B. Johnny B. Bass surprises him with a head scissors takeover. They fight back and forth and reverse through a tombstone. Then Johnny B. Bass sends Paige out of the ring with a tutti fruity. He continues the onslaught with the bad mood and a slingshot leg drop for the win at 12 minutes, 35 seconds. Matt, what do you think of the opening match here? Uh, very strong opener. I like the callbacks with the tombstone because there's the reversal that they did towards the end of the match. Um, you know, a lot of really good stuff. I agree. I thought this was a really fun opener. It was a good way to start the match. And I even like the the post promo here by Johnny B. Bad, you know, nowadays he's a motivational speaker. He goes to colleges and things. And, um, you could definitely see the roots of that here. Like he's just kind of giving an inspiring speech after he wins this title and he has Kimberly at his side. I I like this quite a bit. Yep. All right. So our next match we have, (laughs) Oh, Jesus God. A tight fist match between Big Bubba Rogers and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. <laughs> sounds like a train wreck. Like, you, you read that title and you know that it's like a cheeseburger. You know it's not going it, to, it'll get the job done, but it's probably not going to provide anything of value. This is why the beginning of Hogan's run in WCW is looked so down upon. Because both these guys, you know, actually Big Bubba was here before. But Duggan is guaranteed a holdover from Hogan, right? Like Hogan's saying, all right, get my buddy Jim in here. Yep. So Duggan jumps Bubba before the match, and they brawl into the ring. The ref is preventing Duggan from using his 2 by 4 so both men trade punches and clotheslines. They then brawl to the floor, and they go to the second ring. And this is one thing I did like about the World War III concept. We have these three rings here, and when guys would use two and sometimes three rings, it was always fun. Yeah, it's not, and it's also one of those things where they didn't, Largely because they could not construct the other two rings at the end of the yeah. show. They had to work around it throughout the whole pay-per-view. Duggan traps Bubba's head between the posts, and he punches him a bit. He then dives at Big Bubba Rogers, but Bubba moves. Duggan crashes on the rail. Bubba attacks with some uppercuts and chokes. That Big Bubba uppercut was always big. <laughs> like I always loved that punch. He also nails an enziguri, which was which was fun to see. 
Bubba then focuses on Jim Duggan's ribs until Duggan answers with a shoulder block. Uh, this isn't enough, so, so Rogers tapes Duggan's arm to the ropes. He punches him, but Bubba runs into Jim Duggan's outstretched fist. Duggan then follows by backdropping Rogers out of the ring. The brawl continues until Duggan slams him and nails the running clothesline. However, here comes <laughs> VK Wall Street because they grabbed, they grabbed IRS from the WWF, and here he is getting involved in this match. Which is funny because... Bubba Rogers is dressed like IRS. <laughs> That's true. Uh, this was Bubba's gimmick, though, before he even became Big Boss Man. When he was in WCW, he was bodyguard for Jim Cornette, and this was his gimmick at that time. So did IRS steal from him? Something to ponder. Anyway, Duggan spots VK Wall Street and uses a 2x4, but B- VK Wall Street tosses a chain into the ring. Bubba uses this to knock Duggan out for the win at 10 minutes, 8 seconds. That's about three minutes too long. Yeah, I mean, they tried to make the most of it with all the... Because they switched rings at mm-hmm. least twice. And the crowd popped with the 2 by 4 spot. But outside of that, I mean, it's sloppy. There's that part where he botched putting, throwing him into the ring post. And there's like a three-second period where he forgets what to do, so he just chokes him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this, this, was, uh, this was not great. Not great. We then go to a podium with a promo of somebody who's usually great, Ric Flair. He's saying they're in Flair's old stomping grounds, but Sting wants revenge. As you recall from Halloween Havoc, Flair had basically stabbed Sting in the back for estimated 90th time. He does say that he's going to style and profile, and he says it is a master plan to get Sting, Hogan, and Savage under the same roof at the same time. And then he compares himself to Dr. J ruling the scope and... Gene tries to end the interview, but Ric Flair, being Ric Flair, just keeps on wooing. All right, so we move on. Our next match is a women's match. It's Bull Nakano and Akiri Hokuto versus Mayomi Osaki and Cutie Sasaki. So here we go. I mean, this is the month before uh, Medusa would throw the belt in the trash, right? So they're trying to get the women's division going here, but WCW was never really big on the women's division, were they? No, oh, and... It was also right right before this WWF had their big women's showcase at Survivor Series. Um, so I, I do think it's one of those things where they tried to capitalize on WWF trying to re-legitimize women's wrestling in their division. But it was never either company's focal point for the next four or five mm-hmm. years. So we're starting off, Bull and Akira, they jump their opponents and they double-team them for a bit. Bull's whipping Naomi around by the hair which was a huge thing with the women back then. They would always use this hair move. And goddamn, you can't fake that. You know that fucking hurts when they do that. Oh, yeah. Like, there's no there's no way around that. Yeah. They then bite and they choke Osaki while Nakano observes her, absorbs her attacks. But Osaki counters with a DDT and then tags in Suzaki. They put Bull and Akira in half crabs and do their double teaming. And then this continues until Cutie hits her partner by mistake. Bull Nakano answers with a power bomb but then misses a moonsault. Ozaki and Suzuki, they use this opening to land some flying stomps. However, Bull blocks both by using a double suplex. They brawl for a bit, and Cutie and Mayomi, they do some stereo hurricanas. Ozaki then performs a half Nelson suplex, but a carry dumps her on her head, which looked painful, man. God damn. Oh, that, that, was a, that was a bad what spot. A crazy spot. Hokuto also takes out both women with a missile drop kick. She follows out with a somersault plancha to the floor. 
And this really astounds Heenan. Like, Heenan at this point is really into this match. Then Bull and Akira, they do a doomsday device, but Cutie stops the pin. Akira deals with Cutie, so Bull lands a flying leg drop for the win at 9 minutes, 16 seconds. I'd say this is a pretty good match. What do you think? It is. I just wish the crowd was more into it. Yeah, they were pretty Uh, bad. I think part of that's because they had no idea who any of these women were. It got better at the end. I mean, some of the bumps they're taking at the end is, you know, a lot more... uh, a lot more hard-hitting than what WCW was doing at the time. And it's also got the problem with tag team wrestling that can happen from time to time where you lose track of who's legal. So then Mean Gene, he comes back, and we get a Lex Luger promo. And you know what? Me and you, will, will we will always fight about Luger. You're not a big Luger guy. I think this is the best Luger era there is. Like this stuff of whether he's friends with Sting or friends with the Dungeon of Doom is fun stuff. Although one thing that I will always knock Luger for and will never ever defend is his promos. Because this is a bad promo right here. Oh, he's never he's never been good with promos. No. You know, he he's like in the uh like the psycho Sid yes. of don't just don't put a microphone in his hand at exactly. all. Exactly. Or Brock Lesnar. It's like it's it's never gonna work. Our next match, US title match with Kensuke Sasaki versus Chris Benoit. Both men they're trading hard chops and kicks before doing a test of strength. We go back and forth until Sasaki answers. Kensuke, I'm sorry, answers with hard strikes and slams. Benoit tries evading him, but Sasaki nails a press slam. Benoit answers by sending him to the floor and then performing a dive. And then Benoit follows with a snap suplex and a triangle choke. Sasaki catches Benoit in a power slam, which was a crazy spot. Benoit responds with a rolling ger- with the rolling German suplexes, which becomes his mo. He also reverses a tombstone. That spot again. Like this is the second match on this card, and we're only about three, four matches in that we see. And we had two match and two matches end with leg drops. Yeah. Already. He hits a flying headbutt. Next, Chris Benoit gives him a super Frankensteiner, which was a great move. Sasaki returns this with a power bomb, and then Benoit blocks the submission before they trade clotheslines. However, Sasaki lands this crazy brain buster for the surprising win, I think, at 10 minutes even. Matt, what do you think of this match? 10 minutes, but it's almost a squash match. Almost, huh? Like, Benoit really does not get much in the way of offense. And I kind of, I think Benoit probably should have gone over here. I know Sasaki had just won the title. But Benoit had they had just reformed the horsemen with him in the lineup. Yeah. So you figured the, the the rationale would be to put some gold on them, have Benoit win the US title, because that would lead you to believe that Flair might win in the main event. That's a great point. Although at this point the horsemen were kind of I mean, they were pretty much a shell of their former selves. They were keeping this name going. I think they knew they had something with Benoit. They didn't really know what to do with him, so they put him in with the horsemen and we'll see in, you know, just a few months that they'd give Benoit some interesting things to do, but at this point you're right. It's there's really no point in having him here. Yeah, well, especially with, with losing and Can we address the Benoit thing oh, now? Yeah. Alright. I I hate going back and watching Benoit matches, and I know that we have to do this for the next 12 plus years because it's inescapable, but I know we always talk about separating the art from the artist with movies. You know, that that's always a, a sticking point, and I'm usually someone who can do that, but I, I just can't when it comes to Chris Benoit because so much of what he did and will do in the ring is a direct correlation to what happened at the end of his life. As a performer, remarkable. 
Absolutely. Was never great with promos, but I think they knew that. He knew that, which is why they never really had him speak. You know, sort of like the silent, stoic, just hard-hitting guy. But, you know, as a human being, I just can't can't see past it, no matter how hard I've tried. It's tough. It's really tough. I will completely agree with you there. Benoit is one of those guys that you watch his matches. He is so intense. And his matches, people love to say that Hart was really good and stiff without injuring people. Like, Benoit was really stiff. And you're absolutely right. He takes so many chair shots in his life, and he does this flying headbutt so many times. And you know that has something to do with what happened towards the end of his and his wife and his son's life. It is sad to see. But at the same time, I've always loved Benoit matches. And so I am able to separate that, especially in 95. This is, what, 12 years before all of that happened. I'm able to separate it. I think once we get to when him and Nancy get together, woman, that's when you'll really see the correlations. But here, I'm not there yet. And it's tough because some of the best matches I've seen involve Mm -hmm. him. So it's going to make that even more challenging. But as we'll see in the next four or five years, he was never... He was never going to be the guy, even though they tried to make him the guy to get him to stay towards the end of his. But it's just that thing, you know, guys that size, you know, Guerrero, him, Jericho, they always had a ceiling in WCW, um, even though they did gangbusters in ECW. But but here, yeah, you're right, the horseman thing was sort of being on its last legs, or so we thought. But the moment I knew being a horseman meant nothing, is when Jeff fucking Jarrett was allowed. <laughs> Your favorite. And we will get there for sure. Uh, speaking of people who are tied to Benoit in a certain way. Yeah, for sure. Let's get to that. So, Mean Gene is at the podium. We're here with Matt's favorite stable, the Dungeon of Doom. Because here Mean Gene is with the Giant, the Taskmaster, and Jimmy Hart. They're saying that they're not afraid of Hogan, even though he's back in the red and yellow. And then the Giant gives a poem. Which is, roses are red, violets are blue, I'm going to kick your butt to Kalamazoo. <laughs> Another guy, speaking of guys who can't do good promos, huh? Uh, well, it took... Yeah, but Giant Big Show, he never... There's one promo where he cut a battle rap on John Cena that, that's amazing. I'll have to send you that when we get okay. to it. But it's always better when guys like that don't talk. You know, I think guys like Giant, Lesnar, Sid. Really, the only one of those, like really big guys who could do stuff with character. It's like, I think of guys like Nash and Undertaker, who actually have have really strong personalities, which, you know, Giant never did, except if you've seen The Waterboy at this time, and that was a few years later. <laughs> so then Tony Schiavone plugs Starcade, and then we get Mean Gene again. Mean Gene's busy tonight. He's with Randy Savage, and Savage says that Lex Luger's going to find out that he is the total package, and he says that he's not just 100%, he's a million percent. And then we get to the match. The next match, Lex Luger with Jimmy Hart versus Macho Man Randy Savage. So the match is uh, Savage chokes Luger on the ropes and rams him into the corners. Then Luger surprises him with a boot, but Randy hits him with a clothesline. He then puts Luger in a Boston Crab. Luger breaks free and they brawl a bit on the floor. Uh, Savage rams Luger into the rail. He then rolls Luger into the ring and hits the flying elbow. But here's Jimmy Hart, that pesky little Jimmy Hart, to distract the ref. Savage attempts throwing Luger into Hart, but Jimmy moves. The fight then spills to the floor again, and Luger's putting Savage in the torture rack. Jimmy has to remind Lex to return to the ring. Lex obliges, and then he puts Savage in an armbar. 
Savage passes out, so the ref awards Luger the match at 5 minutes, 28 seconds. The best I can say about this match, at least it was short. Yes, but the biggest problem is they're overcomplicating this whole arm storyline. They are, because Hogan just said his arm's fine. <laughs> they just tried to swerve the internet crowd, which at the time was like four people in front of a giant Macintosh. <laughs> All right, so we, we, we didn't get a recap of the Sting Flair feud. And then we have the match. We have Sting versus Ric yep, Flair. First, first time ever, right? What's that? <laughs> first yeah. time ever. Flair <laughs> Right? Well, here's what I'll say about this. You know, WCW does go to this a lot. And they started this in 1988. Flair was looking for opponents. And Dusty Rhodes, who was the booker at that time, took a real liking to this kid Sting. And he said, you know what? Let's do it. Let's see how it goes. They ended up having a hell of a match. It went to a 45-minute draw. And they would continue to feud off and on for the next 13 years. And you know what? Yeah, basically, until WCW went under, and then they would feud again at TNA 10 years Did after Did they that. really? I didn't know that. Yes. What Bischoff says is, you know what? If we ran out of things for both of them to do, you can never fail by putting them together. And I will go ahead and say, they have never had a subpar match. They have had par matches. But they've never had a subpar match. So I completely, anytime these two get in the ring, I am for it. So have you seen any of their previous matches, Matt? Or is it just from this era on that you've seen? Well, I've seen I've seen almost all the big matches. Like, you know, the, the world title match, obviously, in 88. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've seen a lot of that. Great stuff. American Bash, but, 90. You know, yeah, Great American yeah. Bash, for sure. So, so up to this point, I don't mind the two of them, you know, having a, another pay-per-view match. But there's going to come a point. Once we get to TNA, where I'm like, it's just sad. Yeah, I don't. I didn't see any of the TNA stuff. So, yeah, we're not reviewing TNA, no, everybody. But uh, no, we're leaving TNA out. But they, but they, they, they were the successor in a lot of ways to the bad parts of WCW. <laughs> yeah, that's what I heard. So we get to the match. Uh, Sting's hitting Flair with some punches and press slams and clotheslines. Flair's regrouping and he moves from ring to ring. He lures in Sting, but Sting absorbs his chops and punches. Flair teases, leaving until Sting then stops him. And then Sting crashes on the guardrail when he misses a Stinger splash. I mean, this is the one, two, three of how these matches start. They didn't really start matches too differently from match to match. Like, we have Sting no-selling. No. Sting, Sting's hanging with press slams. Sting's hitting everything but the kitchen sink. And then once he tries the Stinger splash on the outside, Flair will always move. Yep, it's like... Uh... It's like when RVD used to throw chairs at people, <laughs> and he would he would hit the the spinning kick every time. Nobody ever put the chair yeah. down. So the ref is preventing Flair from using the chair, but Flair does some eye rakes and low blows instead. He then wears Sting da- Sting down, and he attacks his leg. He then distracts the ref and tosses Sting over the ropes. He continues his attack as he's ripping at Sting's face. Once he has Sting where he wants him, he puts him in a figure four. Flair punches and he slaps Sting, so this causes Sting to wake up and reverse the hold. Flair is arguing with the ref before Sting begins absorbing his strikes yet again. Sting responds with more press lands and he throws Flair off the top rope. My God, when will Flair learn that that move never works? <laughs> so much to tell his divorce lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Sting then whips Flair around the ring, and he no-sells an atomic drop. He continues with the superplex and puts Flair in the Scorpion Deathlock. And this gets the submission, surprisingly, at 14 minutes, 30 seconds. Matt, what do you think of this match? 
it is what it is. Like it, it's no better or or worse than the the numerous matches. I mean, the the Clash of the Champions match they had is probably the best of the series. But this was you know fifteen minutes. Get your shit in. Get out. It's effective. I agree. I mean, I said that they never had a subpar match. I would call this a par match for them. It was no different, no worse, no better than any of the other matches I've seen with them. And you know what? Like I said, I mean, I'd rather take this than another Big Bubba, Hacksaw Doug, and Tate Fist match. Oh, man. Then we get my hero from childhood. But I thought we already saw him as Mean Gene's welcoming Hulk Hogan to the podium. And he's swearing that he's going to get his belt back in the most dangerous match ever. And then he says that he will be there with his friends until the end. But he also says he wants to get in the ring alone with that big nasty giant. He said we're friends till the end. I'm like, wait, we're not seeing Chucky for a couple more years. (laughs) That was what, 98? That was 98 that they entered Chucky in, correct. (laughs) Oh, God, this fucking company. <laughs> and, they, and you wonder why they went I can't under. <laughs> wait till we get to that. Oh, my God. Well, we, we started, remember, this is the same company that brought RoboCop in four years <laughs> you're, before this. You're not wrong. Oh, I remember that pay-per-view so well. Oh, my God. Years down the line, we gotta, we're going to cover it. And, oh, I can't wait to tell you our responses was, to it. It was what, 90? It was 90. Yeah, it was to promote RoboCop 2. It wasn't even the first one. Yeah, I know. All right, so we have Tony and Bobby Heenan. They're showing off the belt, which still has Hogan's name on it, by the way. <laughs> yeah, like they cared so little about this the belt at this yep. time. And, you know, they did the whole thing where Giant won it by DQ at Halloween Havoc, and then he was stripped of the title. Yep. Yeah, way, way to legitimize the biggest prize in the exactly. company. Exactly, which we covered. So we have two more announcer teams here, Matt. We have Dusty Rhodes with Bischoff. And we have Larry Zabisco with Chris Cruz, a guy who didn't last very long in the company. And here we have the 60-man World War III match for the vacant WCW title. Matt, are you ready for the participants? Uh, I, I guess. All right. <laughs> so here are the participants. We have Arn Anderson, Alex Wright, Brian Nobbs, burial brother Rick, Ricky. Yes, I said that. Squire David Taylor, Scott Armstrong, Sting, Jumpin' Joey Mags, Pistol Pez Watley, Disco Inferno, Ming, Stevie Ray, Mark Starr, Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, Lieutenant James Earl, Lex Luger, Eddie Guerrero, Cobra, The Giant, Paul Orndorff, Chris Canyon. Yes, Chris Canyon's here at this time. Hard Work Bobby Walker. Oh, God, I can't wait to talk about that dude. Earl Robert Eaton, Chris Benoit, Randy Savage, Marcus Bagwell, The Yeti. He's here. Kurosawa. Hugh Morris, The Zodiac, VK Wall Street, DDP, Scott Norton, Flying Brian, Sergeant Craig Pittman, One Man Gang, Super Assassin Number 2, Mr. JL, who's Jerry Lynn, by the way, Bunkhouse Buck, Kensuke Sasaki, Mike Winter, The Shark, which is Earthquake, Steve Armstrong, Hawk, Dave Sullivan, Scotty Riggs, Johnny B. Bad, Big Train Bart, Lord Steven Regal, Dick Slater, Max Muscle, Super Assassin number one, because you can't have number one without number two, Burial Brother Fidel, The Taskmaster, Jerry Sags, Jim Duggan, Booker T, Big Bubba, Ric Flair, and Hulk Hogan. That is a hell of a list with a lot of jobbers. <laughs> yep. 
it's it's a uh, quantity over quality. Exactly. Which you have to do with a sixty man match. Exactly. All right, so let's get to the match. Uh, every single situation in this is not going to get covered. I'm just going to cover a lot of the highlights that they show because if you cover all of this, we'll be here all night. So they break the action into three small screens, and I'm going to say right away, Matt, this was fucking tough to follow. I did not like having these three screens here. Oh, God. This is the precursor to NFL Red Zone. Yeah. Except, <laughs> That's a great comparison. Except, yeah. except, except you have three Scott, uh, whatever his name is, uh, and none of these commentary teams are very good on this. There's, God, there's too much shit going on. Way too much. They're like, okay, let's take it to Eric. All right, let's go to, back to Tony. Okay, let's let's go to Zabisco. Like, oh, nobody knows exactly what to do here. And I don't blame them because, like you said, there's 60 men. There's way too much going on. All right, so we have the Yeti. He's eliminated first, by the way. So much for him. <laughs> oh, it's got to be somebody. <laughs> and I, you know what, though? I will always love Dusty Rhodes on commentary. When he gets excited, it's so fun to watch and listen to him. Why, why is he wearing a giant fruit roll-up, though? <laughs> That's his thing, man. He would wear that, that for the that next three years. Jacket, that friggin' leather jacket looks like a carpet. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they start ragtagging Sting, as Dusty Rhodes says. Meanwhile, Flair and Hogan, they're brawling with each other. In another ring, we have Pillman and Benoit. They're working together. They consolidate the rings as people eliminate the lesser stars. At one point, they wheel an Armstrong brother away on a stretcher, which was a weird spot. Then Luger and Anderson, they're fighting on the floor because the rings are just too fucking crowded. That's the thing. Like, you cannot get your moves in on these things because they're just too crowded. Sting and Flair, they're fighting on the outside. We then get a glimpse of the future when Savage and DDP start brawling with each other. I thought that was a nice little bit of foreshadowing. We then have the Dungeon of Doom. They're teaming up on Hogan while Savage and Luger, they fight. And then the Dungeon almost fights each other, which Sullivan stops right away. The Horsemen in the Dungeon, they team up until Brian Pillman eliminates the Zodiac. On the other side, we have Hawk saving his Japanese partner, Kensuke Sasaki. Then Hawk's yelling at Hogan because he forgot their spot, which was funny. <laughs> Hogan looks just as lost as everybody here. Yeah, well, they do the spot where he throws Kevin Sullivan and nobody cares. Nobody cares, exactly. Guerrero's fighting Flair and Anderson, but they're just too much for him, which I thought was interesting. You know, we have Guerrero already fighting with the big boys here. Flair then returns to Sting, who eliminates both him and Arn Anderson. Luger and Sting, they team to attack the Giant. But then here comes that sneaky Hulk Hogan. He eliminates all three of them. However, the Giants pulling Hogan out from the bottom rope. They brawl while Savage dumps the one-man gang. The ref sees Savage alone in the ring, and he declares him the winner. And Hogan's shocked because he wasn't eliminated. Is it just me, or is this exactly like the 92 Royal Rumble? Well, at least you can say Hogan technically got eliminated in the 92 Royal Rumble. That's true. Player did throw him over the top. That's true. But, But this, like... What a way to make Macho Man look like such yeah. a weak Does nothing the entire match. He gets his ass kicked yeah. earlier in the show. And Hogan throws a big hissy fit. I know. Randy Savage has declared the new champion at 29 minutes and 40 seconds. Let's go over the match before we go over the aftermath. This match was a fucking mess. I couldn't really follow anything. I had it on the big screen. I'm watching it. And I'm trying to take notes. I'm having to pause it because there's just too much shit going on. And like you said, Matt, the finish is just abrupt. It's very confusing. There's no real highlights. There will be highlights in future World War Three Rumbles, but here there just wasn't much. This seemed like a nice idea, but it was just terrible in the execution. So not my favorite match. 
Yeah, this is a pretty abysmal main event. Uh, it's overly chaotic. You know, not a lot of storyline progression, which you think this would serve as, given that Starcade's coming up. It's just random crap. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not good. Bischoff on his podcast calls it a clusterfuck, and I couldn't agree with him more. <laughs> so, as you said, here comes everyone's hero, at least my hero as at the time, Hulk Hogan. He's coming to the ring, and he's protesting the outcome like a little bitch. I mean, he looks terrible here. And the fans are booing him, by the way. They're not agreeing with him one bit. Yeah, this is that, uh, I know it's November, but politics were in full force at this time. He sarcastically congratulates Savage on his win, but like you said, Matt, this makes Savage look so bad. He gets his ass kicked by Luger, and here he is, getting thrown around the ring pretty much, and then ends up as a victor. And Hogan just does not look good. He comes off as whiny. He comes off as, you know, Bret Hart will come off like this in two years' time. It's kind of the same thing, where it's just souring Savage's win, and this is just, just not a good look. So, all right, so that's World War Three. Matt, what was your highlight, and what was your low light of this event? Uh, the highlight would probably be the opening match, for certain. And the main event was the low light. You have both ends of the spectrum. For the thing that your show is built around to be such a nonsensical dud, I think really dampens the whole product. I agree with you, although I'll say my highlight was Sasaki and Benoit. I thought that was just a hard head, hard-hitting, really fun match. But the bad, yeah, the main event's bad, but that Bubba Duggan match was terrible. And that's what I had written down as my low light. But you're right, the main event was just not a good way of ending this. Scale of 1 to 10. What do you give World War Three, sir? Well, on a scale of 1 to 10, I can't say I'm going especially high. I do have to weigh these shows in a considerable portion. How do you blow off what you're built the show around, which is a new world champion? And not only did you have a terrible match to crown a new champion, the guy you picked to win that match looks like a chump, even in victory. He's undermined by Hogan and the way the match is booked and the match that preceded it. All to try to swerve the crowd. You know, good opening match. You know, a good showcase for the unfamiliar to Flair and Sting. But but you've seen that type of match before if you've watched any sort of WCW beforehand. Some good stuff on this show, but God, that that made events pretty bad. Like I don't know if there was a Royal Rumble, uh, like '95 Royal Rumble. That one's really bad. It's just about as bad as this for for different reasons. And that one had 30 people that didn't have near the star power that this yeah. does uh, with 60. So goes to show how bad it was for both of those type of matches. So it's not a great show, but I wouldn't call it horrendous by any means. I'm going to land on a soft five. Soft five from you. I want to go four. There was just the opening match was pretty good. And like I said, Suzuki Benoit was a really surprise for me I, I did not remember this match at all when i watched it for this review but that really surprised me with how much fun i had with it despite one of the participants in it but my god i understand dusty rose was really big when he used to book by saying you got to put something in these events for everybody you know you got to get you got to put something who for people who love just downright wrestling you got to put something in for people who like the brawling and the fighting you got to put like something that's a funny comedy spot like you got to put something for everybody and i just feel like this was just a whole bunch of nothing there was no real big stories you know, we did have Luger and Savage, but that wasn't handled too well. I, you know, I'm not going to hit Savage too hard because Savage was wrestling with a bad broken arm, despite what Hogan and Savage both say. And so he couldn't really perform at his best. And, you know, when you don't have all your 
stars performing really well. Yeah, Flair Sting was pretty good, but uh, I will always root for a Flair Sting match. But overall, this was a pretty bad event, so I'm going to go 4 out of 10 for World War Three, 1995. Matt, we are going to continue next week. We're going to discuss In Your House 5, the season's beatings. Get it? Season's beatings, which took place in December of 95. What are you expecting when we get back to the WWF and we start with uh, In Your House number five? I'm expecting to turn the page into 1996, I'll say that. Because I, I don't have fond memories of this show from what little I can recollect about it. 95 was not the best year, as we have discussed repeatedly, repeatedly on this show for both companies. And I remember one match on that event being pretty damn solid, but I don't remember another thing from it so it's gonna be interesting to discuss that matt thank you for joining me sir and uh, until next week when we get to in your house five seasons beatings we'll see you at the matches thanks matt